All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Jeff, Jeff, I'm buzzing with anticipation. I've heard that H.W. Brands is going to be on our show today. Is that true? H.W. Brands is going to be on our show today? It's absolutely true. I'm so excited. All right, very special guest with us today. Today we have H.W. Brands, uh, Professor at the University of Texas at Austin and a historian and biographer. I'm a big fan. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, just fine. Glad to be with you, Jeff. So um, John and I, we got into politics through reading history. Um, and uh, some, of, uh, some of my favorite books have been yours. So we're really excited to be able to ask you some questions. And I, uh, I read your Substack, which you write wow. a lot, by the way. Um, and I love it. Uh, we, should, we should read, everyone should read as much as you write. Um, and you've got this great article. Uh, it was last week called Life After Life. And it kind of talk about the analytical and the narrative historian. So just wanted to kind of, you know, where do you feel like you fit into that? And what do you feel the roles of those two uh, historians are in our society? So in the first place, historians relate the past to people in the present. So we deal with things that have already happened, and we try to discover them, investigate them, then to somehow convey them what happened, and if there's a lesson, a meaning that comes out of it, convey that too. Some of it is simply a transcription of history. So this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But it's never only that, because somebody has to arrange the facts. Somebody has to decide what's important, what goes in, what goes out. Now, in the piece that you talked about, I distinguish between analytical historians and narrative historians. And I have a foot in both camps. I'm an academic. And academic historians, at least that's my day job. That's they, that, they write the paycheck. And as an academic historian, there is this presumption that your primary audience is people who already know pretty much as much of the facts about this thing you're writing or talking about as you do. So facts are relatively less important to the academics because in the academic world, people tend to specialize. And so if you specialize in the War of the Roses or the Industrial Revolution or 20th century politics, you get to a certain point where you know the story. You know, this person was elected, this invention took place, and so on. Then, to justify writing new articles and books about this subject, you got to come up with something new. And the something new is almost always a new interpretation. Now, occasionally, occasionally, there is some new cache of historical records that is revealed. I started out as a historian of American foreign policy in the post-World War II era. And the materials that I was going to look at, the raw materials of my history, were typically government documents that had originally been classified for national security reasons. So these are top secret, confidential, and so on. And if I had tried to come along, let's say in 1950, and write the history of the origin of the Monroe Doctrine, which was announced to the world in 1947, I would have largely struck out. I could have told the story as it was known to the general public, as it was reported in the newspapers, but I wouldn't have been able to figure out what was going on in the heads of the officials of the Truman administration because their lips were sealed, basically. And all the 
the memoranda, all the letters that they sent back and forth to each other, they were tucked away for the good reason that to release these to the world would give potential enemies of the United States insight into what Americans were thinking. So the problem there is getting access to this. And I started writing about that period about 30 years later. And the timing was not coincidental because in the United States, there's a roughly 30-year window where things that have been classified can remain classified. But then eventually they are released, almost all of them. Not all of them, but almost all of them. And so in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, I was writing about the early 1950s. Now, in that case, I could come up with new information. So on this day, Dwight Eisenhower said this to John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State. I could add detail that simply wasn't known before that. But people who write about sort of, what shall I say, favorite topics, well-worn topics. So if you're going to write about the, the American Civil War, it's very unlikely that you're going to come up with new material. There's not going to be new information. So all that's left is new interpretation. So the analytical historians, they focus on interpretation. What does it mean? They'll take a different angle on this, the same story. Now, those are the analytic historians. The narrative historians are the ones who do not presume that the people who are reading or listening know all the information. The narrative historian wants to tell the story. And to some extent, the story will be new to a lot of the readers because when I'm writing as a primary, primarily narrative historian, I'm writing for people who are not experts in history, who have not read everything there is on this particular topic. That's what the analytical historians write for. The narrative historians write for a more general audience. But there's another aspect to this as well. And there are people who have written everything there is to read on the Battle of Gettysburg or the Battle of the Alamo. I live in Texas and I've occasionally written on Texas history. Yes, and there are people who have read, read everything there is to read on the Battle of the Alamo. And if you write a new book on the Battle of the Alamo, they will read that because, <laughs> because they want to know everything. But there's also an angle... I'll be the first to admit, there's a little bit of the bedtime story angle to this. Tell me that story again, Daddy, because if it's a good story, it's worth retelling and rereading. Mm -hmm. But for the narrative historian, the goal is to portray this series of events. And it's, an, it's a narrative rather than simply a collection of, of facts. It's a narrative because one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. And so you tell this story. It's been my observation. It's been my own experience, but I've seen this in all sorts of people again and again, that the human brain appears to be wired for stories. And this is why I start telling you a story. And then if something interrupts, wait a minute, wait, tell me how it ends. You know, you get, you get it because we want to know how it turns out. And so this is what the narrative historian sort of plays to this is what the narrative story. I want to, I want to get you involved, you my readers. I want you to get involved with my characters. I want you to care about my characters. I want you to care how it turns out. So you can't come to the last chapter and then just put the book. No, no, I want to know how it turns out. Now it's a bit of a trick sometimes when you're telling stories where the ending is known. But as James Cameron, the director of the movie Titanic, among other things, said, you know, nobody walks into the theater thinking the Titanic's not going to sink, but you can still make a good story out of it. So I liken that actually to the Battle of the Alamo. And one of the strike, everybody knows that all the defenders were killed. 
So if you expect to be surprised by the ending, well, no, that's that's not the way that's going to happen. But we want to know, because in the case of the Battle of the Alamo, and I'd say this is the same thing with the Titanic, you know that these people you're looking at, you're reading about, you're watching in the film, you know that they are doomed. They don't know they're doomed. And so it's almost like this kind of purient interest in, so how are they going to deal with this? And when I wrote about the Alamo, I often thought that the thing that makes the Alamo such a compelling story is that we all know we're going to die. We just don't know the circumstances of our death. And a lot of us, I think, are sort of curious, if not worried and fretful. How am I going to face death? Am I going to face death bravely? Am I going to you know, dissolve into tears? Am I going to fall apart? Well, we have a chance to observe these people in the Alamo, and how did they do it? And theirs is a kind of uplifting story of sort of human courage. They lose, they all get killed, but they seem to have met their fate bravely. Anyway, so the narrative historian emphasizes the story. The analytical historian emphasizes the lesson, the moral, the interpretation. I'll add one thing about this. The analytical historians they have one foot in the camp of the social scientists. These are sociologists, psychologists, economists, people who, who are trying to adopt, adapt the models of the framework of science. So they'll come up with a, a model, a theory, a hypothesis, and they'll test it. And so the sociologist, or even the political scientist, the social scientist as historian, the analytical historian, who is looking at the French Revolution, is thinking of the French Revolution as one data point in a theory of revolutions. Now, the narrative historian might be willing to uh, know that there is a theory of, of revolutions or their model of, of revolutions, but the narrative historian wants really just to get the French Revolution right. And if it carries over to other revolutions, that's fine. But it's this story that I'm going to emphasize. That is, uh, so I, uh, I think about this a lot because the way that I was taught history, history in school versus the way that I learned history after school. I felt like I was kind of taught history in that analytical uh, cachet of like a collection of facts. It was kind of taught at me randomly in different sections as you kind of progress through grade school and middle school and high school. And then as I became an adult and I started reading, I kind of, I, I started reading the narrative. I particularly started with biographies. And I, 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 like you said, I think there's something wired in our brains that makes us love a good story. It, and, and my grandfather kind of taught this to me when I was a kid because we watched tons of history uh, movies, you know, uh, the Alamo, <laughs> um, right. the, uh, what was it? The, the Great War, um, All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, stuff like that. And, it's gripping. You know how it's going to end, but you want to know how, the, like you said, you want to know how they're going to deal with it. And I think, you know, for me, it's what kind of drug me in. And then understanding the narrative of it kind of helped me with, I guess, the the facts or the the whys, you know, that you talk about with the analytical is like, all right, so everybody says that George Washington was a great president and, you know, he could have been a dictator, but he walked away. And it's like, why did, why was Washington the way that he was? And like, I read a story and I think, well, he didn't have a father. He had a, a mother who was like overly, I don't know, maybe fatherly in the absence of his father. And he had this kind of 
strained relationship with her. It caused him to have a little bit of a temper, but overall, it made him. Be, it, I think it shaped him to be kind of a patient person and adapt to different, you know, voices. And it, you know, for me, it's it, it it's been a big part of like my growing as an individual to be able to study history this way. Um, and I, I I love that you have that perspective. And you know, well, so on that subject, I have over the years that I've been teaching writing history, I've sort of asked myself, what is it that history is? What are we trying to do here? And sometimes I think of history as applied philosophy. And we're trying to figure out what human nature consists of. Is there a human nature? Does it change over time? Is my human nature the same as your human nature? So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of thinking about it, and here's, I, here's where I think of sort of the value of history, is that it expands the number of people that we get to know. The, the way we learn about history, the way humans learn about history from the time we're infants, we learn what it means to be human by modeling our parents or our mm -hmm. siblings or our teachers. And the older we get, the more we have other models. So if you're a kid, maybe a fireman is your hero or a baseball player or a pop star or whatever it might be, your teacher maybe. And, and so as you get older, you increase the inventory of people that you know well enough to form opinions about. And perhaps draw lessons from them. So if you liked the patience of George Washington under distress, okay, well, maybe I can learn something from that and learn to be patient when I'm stressed. And most people, they know a relatively small number. Their circle of acquaintances is, is relatively small. The number of people you can actually get to know in your own life is limited by who you meet in the time of number of hours and day and all this. But what history does is it allows you to meet and get to know people who lived long ago, people that you otherwise would not have any connection to. And so it allows us to expand our understanding of what it means to be human. And it's often tempting, it's, it's a common failing of every generation to think that the world was created anew when they came on the scene. Mm. And okay, so what does Thomas Jefferson have to say to me? You know, what can I learn from Moses? You know, whoever it might be. Um, and the answer is, we'll take a look because they dealt with challenges like yours. When I teach, and I do this in my writing a lot as well, I try to, I try to introduce the characters to my readers and my students in as concrete a way as possible. And so I choose my characters among those people who have left enough of a record, typically in their diaries, their letters, their memos, so that they can speak for themselves. I got hooked on history by reading old letters, reading diaries of explorers, reading journals of discovery. And I thought, this is really cool because it was as though I was there. I didn't get this filtered through a historian. Now, at the time, I didn't know this distinction that historians make between primary sources and secondary sources, but the primary sources is the person who was writing this, who took this down, was there, was a participant, was an eyewitness. And that really gripped me because then I really got to know these people. I, I read the the diaries of David Douglas. David Douglas was an English botanist who walked across Canada 
in the early 19th century and wrote down everything that he saw. And I thought, this is fantastic. And so as I write, I focus on individuals. I have a hard time playing the social historian. Social historians deal with sort of large movements, large groups of people. The, and that's great because there's a certain power in writing about the Industrial Revolution is the Industrial Revolution. But it gives, it gives the, the layperson, the ordinary person who's not already interested in history, few hooks to really hang on to because we identify with people. And so I wrote sort of about the Industrial Revolution in America in a book called American Colossus. And there it is. Okay. And so I tell the story through lives of people. Some of them are people you will have heard of, John D. Rockefeller. Others are people you would never heard of, bosses in Chicago and miners in Montana and, and people like this. But these are people who can speak for themselves because actually the farther I got into the world of professional history, and I say this with no disrespect whatsoever for my academic colleagues or my historian colleagues, but I became sort of less taken by the accounts, by, by the testimony of historians because, well, you weren't there. How do you know? Show me your evidence. And I came to liken what the historian says to hearsay evidence in a courtroom trial. And, you know, at the the opposing attorney says, I object, Your Honor, hearsay, hearsay. And hearsay evidence is usually not admitted because you need to get it from the eyewitness himself or herself. And so as much as possible, I try to tell it through the words of the people who are actually there. That's what hooked me on it. And I've had a number of readers say, yeah, boy, you know, that's what I like about it because I really, in my most recent book, I've, I focus on Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and James Madison. And so my readers get to know these figures. Yeah. So um, just like Jeff, like I became to know American history through a lot of reading and stuff, but I, I had the same feeling as Jeff. Like, I don't think I knew I learned American history in school. Like you learn about the civil war, you learn about facts. Like I learned, took a European history class, you learn facts about Europe, but it is so um, disparate. Like it's just, it's one particular area. You're just learning the facts you do get a kind of a gloss from the teacher or from the author and stuff. But I have found that the, what has really helped me and sort of, and we talk about politics in the show, like, like the polit political story of the American of America is how, uh, as much as we like to think we're different now, like we're, we're very similar to the, the beginning. And you, you listen to the same stories over and over again, as it gets repeated generation after generation. And I think, like you said, history is sort of our, our link to the human humans of the past and it is it is missing a lot in, in uh, current society. Like, do you think there's there's sort of a way that you can get more people interested in history other than giving them American classes and hoping they read it for Christmas? Or, or well, of course, I I wish that everybody got copies of my books in their stockings. But <laughs> I'll tell you tell you the way I do it, um, the way I approach this, because I do think this is important. I think that we as individuals benefit from knowing more history. I think we as a republic benefit from knowing more history. This is not so important if you live under a dictatorship because what individuals think there doesn't have a real effect. But we're the ones who indirectly, but nonetheless ultimately make the decisions about this country by the people we choose. And we elect or we don't elect or we reelect and all that stuff. So I think there is this collective value in it. And, and the way I try to get people engaged is to write books that will hook the people who don't think they're interested in history. Every semester at the University of Texas where I teach, I make a point of teaching a large introductory course in American history. 
Uh, it starts in the fall with the pre-colonial period and it ends in the spring with as close to the present as we can responsibly get. And most of the students, uh, the vast majority of the students are not gonna be history majors. This is in effect a required course for all undergraduates at the University of Texas. In fact, every undergraduate in the state of Texas, public university has to take two semesters of American history. So these are, these are young people who didn't choose this because they're interested in history. They got to check this box so they can graduate. And what I do is I explain to them that come into my class, sit down, don't take notes. I don't let them bring in computers. I don't let them take notes. I say, I want your undivided attention. And I'm going to tell you stories. And I tell them stories. And the stories, I, the ones I choose, are the ones that I think will be most relatable. Now, when you start thinking about it, there are lots of stories that relate to young people. My students are 18 to 21. And so I, you know, I ask them, if you had been living in Texas, I teach in Texas, if you had been living in Texas in 1861 and your state decided to secede, would you have volunteered to join the Confederate Army? And then, okay, yeah, some would, some not. And I said, well, you know, some did, but they needed, they needed more, so they drafted people. Would you, would you have dodged the draft? Um, would have made any difference if um, troops of the United States, troops of the North, which you now consider to be an independent, invaded Texas? Would that spur you to take action? I, 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 I use, sometimes I use specific people. So during the Revolutionary War, the British government offered freedom to slaves of rebel masters. And so George Washington's slaves, they were told by Lord Dunmore, who was the colonial governor of, of Virginia, if you abandon George Washington and come over and join the British army, we will give you your freedom. Now, I say, okay, so you're somebody, you're a young man, young black man, a slave, on Washington's plantation, and you're 20 years old, and you hear of this offer, what do you do? Do you accept the offer? Well, you know, what would make you accept the offer? What would make you say, oh, I don't know. Uh, if you join the British Army, you might get killed, okay? And can you trust the British that they'll follow through on this offer? What happens if the British lose the war? You know, then do they, but anyway, the whole idea, is to put students in the minds, in the place of people who had to make decisions in the past. And I explain that we have imperfect information. We cannot know everything that was in their heads. But the point is to make a connection between my students, young people today, with young people at other times in history, and to show that everybody is confronted with decisions. And their decision might be, okay, um, do I major in economics or history? And somebody else's decision might be, do I go west to hunt for gold in California or do I stay on the farm in Pennsylvania? But the point is to make these people in the past real to students today. And they can admire those people in the past if they want. They don't have to. They can think that they're villainous. But the point is to get them to know these people, to enlarge their circle of acquaintances so that they will know more about this, this experience of being human. Because once again, 
Um, the longer I do this, the more I think this really is history is a branch of applied philosophy. And we want to know what does it mean to be human? And what do humans do? You know, what, what makes a good life? Uh, what is happiness? And how do we know what we know and all this other stuff? Yeah, I, um, so I, I love a lot of what you said in there, you know, go back to, you know, how important history is in a republic. That's something that John and I talk about a lot on this show. We, you know, there's a lot of talk about democracy in the world. And John and I are like, well, let's not forget, we're a republic. And, and having a virtuous republic, I think is important. And it kind of transitions into this, this other article I wanted to talk to you about that you wrote. Excuse me. Way back in 2003, okay. And I read this today, and it was like I, t I text John, and I was like, "This is like, I don't know." It was it was energizing for me because clearly you've you've read, but also written a whole narrative of his of American history in your books. And I've kind of read it myself, and I'm on this mission, and I'm trying to figure out like, am I seeing things correctly? Am I getting all of all of the points that I should get? And the way that you kind of broke down in this article, it kind of was like, okay. I'm tracking something correctly. And you talk about what would our founders think of today? And like you 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 were like they were kind of they were kind of radicals in a way. Um but I think they would be disappointed and I think you said this to a degree is they would be disappointed that we didn't keep up the solving the problems. And so my question is sorry little thing hold on. should we amend our constitution more should we amend our constitution more i think the answer is yes um the problem is that it's very difficult to do that now the framers of the constitution the people who wrote it in 1787 designed it to be difficult to amend but not impossible. Now, they amended, that generation amended the Constitution more than the rest of the generations combined, almost. So there were 12 amendments to the Constitution within the first 15 years. And we've only added 15 in the 200 years after that. And two of those amendments dealing with prohibition canceled each other out. So they were indeed radicals. These are people who launched a revolution to overturn the government they, that they had grown up with, the government they had inherited. They created a new country. You know, we, on the spectrum of support for change, there are conservatives who don't want to change anything. And then there are moderates who want to maybe reform a little bit. There, we'll call them progressives who want to reform more and then keep moving to the left. And you get to the radicals who want to change nearly everything. But then there are revolutionaries who blow up the system and start over again. And these, these are the people we're talking about. These are the ones who were the revolutionaries who blew up the old system, and then they had to create this new system. Now, something weird, something strange happens over time that even revolutionaries get adopted, perhaps co-opted, by conservatives. And so it's tempting to think of George Washington as a conservative. And James Madison is a conservative. Alexander Hamilton is a conservative. Alexander Hamilton is a good example of one who really has been embraced by conservatives in America. But Alexander Hamilton, first of all, was a raving revolutionary. He was on the front lines at the Battle of Yorktown to overthrow the British. And then, and then this is just kind of a reminder that the labels change over time. 
he was an advocate of a much stronger government than existed at the time. Moreover, a government that was centered in the national capital and not in the states. And these are two aspects of government that conservatives have long decided, well, we don't want this at all. We want a smaller government, and we look to the states rather than the central government, if government there must be. But of course, everybody wants to attach to the heroes of the past, the ones who fought this war and won the war, and we'll take them over. I often speak to groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution. Now, the Daughters of the American Revolution, I hesitate to stereotype, but I think it's not unfair to say that in their politics, they tend to lean kind of conservative. And so, and I've spoken to them about this and they take it in good humor. And I, you know, they, they say, yeah, yeah, okay, you're pretty conservative. And I point out that, you know, you, you are professing to be fans of the American Revolution. But if you'd been alive at the time of the American Revolution, you wouldn't have been revolutionaries. You would have been loyalists. You were the ones because people who have a big stake in the status quo, they usually want to preserve the status quo. Now, the surprising thing is when you get somebody like George Washington, George Washington was really well fixed in the status quo. Nonetheless, he challenged the status quo and risked everything that he had. Benjamin Franklin was the same way. And so these are people who whom we can admire for their boldness. But if you, then there's this temptation, once you say, okay, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, then there's a temptation. I happen to think it's a rather juvenile temptation, but it crops up again and again, to think that the people on the side of the good guys, all they do is good stuff. And it's not just, you know, on balance, they're good. They Everything they did was good. So if you learn something that's a little bit disappointing about them, then, oh my gosh, we got to take down their statue and start over again. And so this article that we referred to, um, I point out that the people who wrote the con people who fought the revolution, overturned the British connection to America, wrote one constitution, the Articles of Confederation, that didn't work. So they overthrew that, tried another one, the, art the federal constitution, 1787. They believed that if your government isn't working, you fix it. You don't just sit there and complain. You do something, you fix it. In the case of James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, the architects of the Constitution, the ones who really orchestrated the overthrow of the government of the United States. The government of the United States in those days consisted of the Articles of Confederation. And under false pretenses, they said that they were simply going to propose amendments to the Articles. But these were this sounded pretty innocuous because you had to get unanimous votes of all of the states in order to adopt amendments. And so any one state could say, if we don't like it, you know, nothing lost. But they brought people to Philadelphia to this Constitutional Convention. They brought them in, they closed the doors and said, well, we're just kidding. We're not just going to amend the Constitution. We're going to write a new Constitution all over again. And then we're going to spring this on the American people. And so they did this. They had to do it behind closed doors because if word got out of what they were doing, they never would have been allowed to finish it. The states would all, or many of the states would have pulled back their delegates and say, wait a minute, we don't want to have any part of this. But this is what they did. But the point is that they believed in self-government. Don't be governed by institutions you inherited from last generation or three generations ago. Do it yourself. If there are things that don't work, fix it. And so we, but they, they underestimated, in part because they were starting de novo, all you know, from the ground up new. They didn't reckon sufficiently with the 
the inertia that afflicts governments once institutions come into existence. So when an institution doesn't exist, then there's nobody who will come to its defense because if it doesn't exist, you're not going to defend it. But as soon as an institution is developed, then people develop an interest, certain people develop an interest in maintaining it. So nobody had an attachment to the American Senate. Nobody had an attachment to the American Electoral College before the Electoral College existed. But once the Electoral College existed, then certain groups, certain states, certain people realize, oh, I've got an interest in maintaining this, even if the values they gave rise to it changed over time. So the and I so in this article that I wrote, I proposed, well, so what would happen if Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, if these people came back today? How would they look on us and on the world of American politics? They well, on the one hand, they would probably be somewhat pleased that their handiwork had stood the test of time. But I think they would have been astonished. And I think they would have been appalled, actually, that we're still being governed by this thing that was written more than 200 years ago. You really? Come on. You have no imagination. You certainly, the circumstances of your life in the 21st century are not the same as circumstances in the late 18th century. You know, so right. Thomas Jefferson was so bold as to say that laws actually had no legitimacy within about 20 years of the time that they were written because every generation needed to govern itself. And self-government really meant you govern yourselves. Don't be governed by your parents or your grandparents. You know, just adapt, change the laws as necessary. And it turns out that putting sunset clauses on laws leads to a lot of kind of extra work and you're having to refight battles. But, but at least it would give each generation a whack at it. But we don't do this in part because these institutions develop this certain kind of solidity and inertia, but also because there's this temptation to make heroes out of the people in the past. And so the title of the article you were mentioning was Radical Chic. And I mean- uh, Founder so, Chic. I'm sorry? Founder's Chic. Founder Chic. Founder Chic. Yeah, that's what it was. So it was a takeoff on Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic. So Founder Chic. And it was um, basically say, you know, we have sort of fallen under the spell of these founders and think as though, boy, they were so much smarter than we are. They were so much more virtuous. They were so, so bolder than we are. And we simply can't match up. And so we shouldn't even try to mess with their handiwork. And I think they would have been quite astonished and disappointed at that. Well, can I ask two questions? So the first one is, did they really overthrow everything? Because like we, Jeff and I live in Virginia and we have the Virginia House of Delegates, which is sort of the, you know, was preceded by the House of Burgesses. So like the oldest living uh, legislative body in the United States. So like there is a lot of history in that sense. So there is, they didn't throw everything away in one sense. Like they still no, have- No, no, not at all. What the they What they overthrew was the national government. Sure. In the same yeah. way, in fact, in the same way that the Confederate states, the 11 Confederate states, tried to overthrow the national government in their day and create a new one in its place. The difference is that the we'll call them the revolutionaries of 1787, they succeeded mm -hmm. because now they succeeded. They didn't force it upon anybody. They gave everybody a vote. And so right. this was what they told themselves to basically to justify what they were doing because they, they acknowledged, they knew they didn't say it openly, but they knew that they were doing something they had not been authorized to do. But the truth would be, the justification would come if this were in fact adopted by a vote of the people. 
And it was, and so then all was forgiven. But yeah, but they did. And and this leads to uh, sort of the situation that we've inherited ever since, because you mentioned the government of Virginia didn't change by virtue of these events of 1787. And that was kind of the problem because they wanted a stronger central government, but they lived in a world of 13 sovereign state governments. So what can they do with that? In fact, at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison, especially Alexander Hamilton, talked about simply dissolving the state governments and making the national government the only real government in the country. Now, the states would remain as sort of administrative subunits, the way counties are in states today. The counties don't have any sovereignty, but okay, we collect taxes county by county. And so that would have done the same way, but they couldn't do it. They knew that they could never get it passed. They knew that they had to get it through the states. And we Americans have been sort of fighting battles between states and the federal government ever since. We've had one you know, huge battle, the, the Civil War. You know, that's a, a debate that leads to the deaths of 700,000 people. For the rest of the time, it leads just to a lot of bickering, a lot of uh, gridlock, a lot of probably duplication of effort. And it's this is this is one where I, I do think about this. Um, we have states within this federal government because the states existed before the federal government did, and they didn't go away. If we did not have this federal system, this two-tiered system today, if Madison and his gang could come back today, call people to Philadelphia and say, okay, we're going to tear it up and start over again, would they create a government that had states and a national government? Because the American model has not been widely adopted in other countries because of this, this continuing problem. There's always going to be this tension. And the tension can be over, it can be over, can you secede from the union? We seem to have resolved that one. And but so how should we fund education? Who makes the rules about COVID vaccinations and lockdowns and things like this? Who I live in Texas and the, the Texas state government, the governor of Texas, are basically presuming to weigh in on immigration policy. And they're not supposed to do that under the Constitution. That's something that's reserved to the feds, but this is something you fight about. You hope that the fighting takes place in court and people then abide by the rulings of the court, but there was that time in the 1860s where that didn't work and we had to take it to the battlefield. Well, that's at least my, my second thought of this. Like, yes, we have the existing system, but we also, if if Madison and Franklin came back, like they would look at our current federal system and how it's all run and with the executive and kind of the, the whole federal bureaucracy, if you will. And they would say, well, this is a very different country than what we had anticipated. So in a certain sense, we the country has changed. It just maybe hasn't changed on paper with the constitution. It's changed more in sort of the traditions and norms that we have day to day. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so, so there's a really striking aspect there. It is a remarkable thing that we still live under a constitution that was adopted in 1789, written in 1787, adopted in 1789. The, the United States was a country of just a few million people at that time. We are a country now of a third of a billion people. And the scale is immensely different. There were 13 states in those days, there are 50 states now. And we spread clear across a continent. And 
people have come to expect a great deal more from government than they did then. In Hamilton's day, Madison, and the day of the founders, there was a debate. There were continuing squabbles between those who wanted more government and those who wanted less government. We still have those same arguments, but the arguments today start from a different baseline. So in 1789, there was the federal government in 1789 touched individual lives almost not at all. People could live almost their entire lives and never even know there was a federal government, except when they voted for president, except they actually voted for electors and they knew the electors by name and they knew the elector was going to make the decision. If they received a letter, okay, that there was this national postal system, but that was about it. And so people live their lives under state governments. Now today, you cannot go a day, you cannot go half, you can hardly go an hour without being aware of the existence of a national government. And this came about not because of some conspiracy on the part of bureaucrats or people who are determined to grab power and bring it to Washington. There was there's some of that. But the thing is that Americans over time have changed their expectations. Before the Great Depression of the 1930s, the concept that the federal government ought to guarantee that people, when they get old, won't die penniless. Well, okay, but in along came, they, that would have seemed utterly beyond imagination. Nobody wanted the federal government to do that. But then comes the Great Depression, and a lot of old folks are dying penniless because banks collapsed and took their life savings. And so Social Security was created. It was quite controversial in the 1930s, but it has become a pillar, a bulwark of everybody's expectations regarding their later years. In the 1960s, the idea that government ought to run a medical system for the elderly and make sure that old folks had medical care. That was quite controversial. The debate over Medicare was a knockdown, drag out sort of thing. Again, people wanted it, they got it, and now, 50 years hence, everybody expects Medicare. And, and the only question is, should we expand it further? So. Alexander Hamilton wanted a bigger government than existed in the early 1790s when he was Secretary of the Treasury. Would he have wanted a bigger government than exists today? I really don't know because he wanted it bigger than then, but today it's 50 times bigger than it was then. Would he have been satisfied with three times bigger than then? If so, he would have said today's government is too big. So. I get the right, right. He was all about the federal debt, but he probably wouldn't want a $33 trillion federal that's debt. That's right. That's right. I kind of get the feeling with Hamilton that he would be okay with anything as long as it was his idea and he was in control of it. Oh, I mean, this is one of the oldest stories in politics. So you're liberals, progressives, Jeffersonian types, they're concerned, they're they are worried about expansive government until they become the government. And then they say, well, okay, actually, we can trust government with power now that I'm the government. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there have been some individuals in American history who have been more candid than others about that. So Theodore Roosevelt was quite happy to gather power to himself. And the only, the only concern he had about power was that he didn't have enough of it. But most presidents, um, most people have been a little bit more circumstance or uh, circumspect about that. But others maybe have just been less candid. 
So that's interesting um, about Teddy Roosevelt. If, if maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly, but did, wasn't he like he was not a fan of Thomas Jefferson? Like he he no. yeah. And but he kind of Thomas Jefferson was one of those people that kind of when he was in power, power was good. When other people was in power, power was bad. And like you mentioned, Roosevelt was of the mindset of power is good because I'm going to use it for good and give me, right. give me, give me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Jefferson's a really good example of this because as long as Jefferson was in opposition, not in power, he said that federal power ought to be circumscribed and that if it's not explicitly in the Constitution that you have this power, then you don't if you're a federal office holder, if you're president. But then he becomes president and Napoleon offers to sell him Louisiana. And he's torn because philosophically, he can't say yes because there's no clause in the Constitution that says the government can acquire new territory. And there's nothing certainly that says that the president can do this. But he thought, okay, well, you know, we can always um, try to pass an amendment to the Constitution. But he knew that the Federalists, the opposition party, would use this to extort something else out of him. He also knew that Napoleon was a rather mercurial individual might very well change his mind in the nine months it took to amend the U.S. Constitution. So he basically banked on the fact that everybody would acknowledge that this was too good a deal to pass up, regardless of your constitutional scruples. Um, so he went ahead and bought it. And it's, it was probably the single greatest accomplishment of his presidency, but it always kind of rubbed him the wrong way. So do you think that the that almost expansion of executive power for the Louisiana Purchase kind of ties together with Polk and the, you know, the, or, well, Tyler, really, uh, it, it bringing Texas into the fold and Calhoun and, you know, they, they're using the simple majority or uh, to, to get it through and bring in that territory as well. Yeah. So one of the things that almost every president and a great majority of Americans quickly buy into is the idea that the country needs to expand. Now, part of this was due to the fact that the American economy, just as all economies in the world, with the partial exception by this time of Britain, were overwhelmingly agricultural economies. Second, the American population was growing rapidly. The American population was doubling every generation. And if you are farmers and you're growing in number, you need more land. Farmers need more land. I mean, land in those days was the equivalent of jobs in a modern economy. And presidents have felt obliged to make sure that there are more jobs. And every month when the Department of Labor issues the jobs report, if it's a good one, presidents pat themselves on the back and say, okay, we're doing good for the American people because you know people need to make a living. And in the early days of farming, to make a living, you needed the land. And so with the population growing, the territory had to grow. And so Benjamin Franklin was largely responsible for expanding the borders of the United States from the crest of the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River in the negotiations with Britain at the end of the war. And then Jefferson doubles it again. The acquisition of Texas fell in the same category, especially when at the end of the war with Mexico, it was accompanied by California and New Mexico, which almost doubled it again in size. And then, and then the country ran up against the Pacific Ocean. And then the question is, what happens then? Well, it would have been something of a crisis in either American history or a crisis that might have seen Canada annexed to the United States or more of Mexico annexed to the United States, except that just at that time, the United States 
was diving into the Industrial Revolution, which meant that more and more people were employed in factories. So you didn't have to expand the territorial base of the country. Now the question was, can you create the demand for the goods that the factories produce? And sometimes it meant, can we find markets overseas mm -hmm. for our, the products of our factories? So government is still trying to make sure that the American people are well taken care of, that the economy is working to the benefit of the American people, but the economy has changed. So the nature of the economy and the acquisition of new territory, that's no longer necessary. Yeah. Um, so I want to come back to, uh, to the, the article with the constitutional amendments. When I, when I asked, you said, yes, it should be it should We should amend the constitution more, but it's very hard. But you also say like, we have a generation of leaders, and this was in 2008, who almost, you know, cowered to the founders and like they just weren't good enough to like get things done. And our, what separated our founders was like being bold. And, and isn't that what we need in this generation now is like we need a generation who are bold, who are willing to go, hey, we need to amend the Constitution. Here's why we need to amend the Constitution. And I think in your article, you tackle one of those things, which is campaign finance, which since 2003, I think has gotten significantly worse. Um, and, you know, you, you, you mentioned like, this goes against what Ben Franklin would want. I mean, you look at that British, the British system in your book, the, the first American, and that story that you tell of Franklin going over there and dealing with the British government and kind of how, you know, the money played a factor over there in the decision making and how unrepresented we were. It feels very akin to what we go through today. Yeah. So Franklin, in fact, proposed that American public officials should serve without pay. Now, it was sort of easy for Franklin to say because he was an old guy. He had made enough money. He didn't need the pay. But he did point out what would happen if people saw that their livelihood depended on remaining in office because then their emphasis, their interest would be in remaining in office regardless of what it took to remain in office. So he thought that was not a good thing. He wanted to see rotation in office. And as to the question of amending the Constitution, there are sort of two problems with amending the Constitution. One I alluded to earlier, and that is once something exists, there's a constituency that emerges to make sure that it continues to exist. I'll give you an example. This is not constitutional exactly, but one of the biggest middle-class tax breaks is the deduction against income taxes of mortgage interest. Now, at, back in the days of the Great Depression, it seemed like a good idea to boost the housing market, to, to make sure that people would buy houses. But it is, it is something that the people who benefit from it most really don't need it. It's, not, it's sort of a, a transfer payment from everybody to homeowners who are already reasonably well off. Now, to get rid of it though, is nearly impossible because so many people have so much of their own wealth wrapped up in their homes. And if you say you can't deduct mortgage interest from your taxes, then the value of their homes diminishes. The real estate industry takes a hit. So if it didn't exist today, nobody would think to create it and they wouldn't have the, the support, the broad support to create it, but it does exist. And so it's really hard to get rid of it because so many people have a vested interest in maintaining it. So that's part of the answer. So we've got an electoral college. And I suggested earlier that nobody would create an electoral college if it didn't exist. 
Other countries don't have electoral colleges. Now, it was it came from a time when, first of all, the country was small. Secondly, communications were slow, even though the country was small. And it wasn't expected that people would know who uh, a South Carolina voter would not have any understanding of who this candidate from New York or Massachusetts was. And the point of the electoral college was the electors, they would tend to know these people because the political class was pretty small in those days and they would all know each other. So there was that. The second thing that is absolutely crucial to this, the electoral college was created in a day by people who were very suspicious of democracy of actually handing political power over to ordinary people. The electors were designed to provide a filter between the ordinary people and the ones who actually chose their leaders. Now, things would change within 50 years, 40 years. By the time of Andrew Jackson, the idea of democracy had taken hold. And we've lived with the idea that ordinary people ought to wield political power, even if through representatives, but they ought to be the ones to choose the representatives, including the president. So we've got this vestige from an earlier time that survives into this modern time. And with democracy, you know, the basic idea is the majority wins. And you don't subdivide the majority among all of these different groups so that you can win the presidency with a minority of the popular vote. But this is what we've got. And there are, it's, it's, it's impossible to change in effect because there are so many small states that benefit from this and there are more small states than big states. So anyway, there's that. But there's one last thing, and this is overlooked. And, and this is, I, I'll say this sort of kind of in defense of not changing things. And the fact is that we have changed a whole lot. We haven't formally amended the Constitution very often, but the way our country operates, the way our government operates is very different from what the founders knew. I mean, for example, just one thing. The vice president originally was the runner-up in the race for the presidency. And there was no expectation that the president and the vice president would agree on policy, they would have anything in common. In fact, it was assumed the opposite because you know, if two people are running for office and one wins and the other guy loses, then probably they don't agree on everything. But we, this is segued into a system where we choose our president and vice president as a ticket. Now, technically, we don't. The, the electors, they cast two votes, one for president, one for vice president. And it's, in, it's quite theoretically possible for an elector to say, OK, I'm going to choose this person for president, but somebody else for vice president. And we've had a couple of times in American history where that happened. So John Calhoun, who was Andrew Jackson's bitter enemy, was also Andrew Jackson's vice president. Because people who were willing to vote for Jackson for president, they also liked Calhoun for vice president. And so you get these situations where it just, I mean, they were, Jackson on his deathbed said that if he could live life over again, he would shoot Henry Clay and hang John Calhoun. <laughs> so, so Henry Clay is another part of the story. But but on this subject, so we've, uh, we have this kind of silent constitution or the unwritten constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution about a Speaker of the House or what the Speaker of the House is supposed to do. There's nothing in the Constitution about debt limits. There's nothing in the Constitution about political parties. In fact, the framers of the Constitution did not like political parties. They wished the country would be spared political parties. And one of the reasons they had the, they had the Electoral College was it was sort of a way to recruit candidates and filter the candidates. Now we have other ways of filtering the candidates. So for a long time, we've had national nominating 
conventions and primary elections and all this stuff. But that stuff has grown up sort of beside the Constitution. And one last thing here, we have, I mentioned that at one time, Social Security as an idea, as a concept, was very controversial. It's no longer controversial. My Medicare was very controversial. It's no longer controversial. So we always, at any given moment, if you take a snapshot of where the United States is at any given time, whether it's 1850 or 1965 or 2023, it looks like the country is in deadlock. It cannot resolve this problem. But that's a misleading snapshot. It's actually a movie we live in. And in the movie, the problems get resolved. And when they get resolved, they get replaced by new problems. And so if you would ask, is the country deadlocked in the 1930s? Oh, yeah, we can't decide what to do about Social Security. You know, today we can't decide what to do about immigration. Now, there's a, the reason we can't decide is that we're pretty evenly split on immigration. In the 1960s, we were pretty evenly split on social on Medicare and so on. So eventually, when attitudes change, then the problems get resolved. We come up with new ones because fix this one, and there's always something else to argue about. So it's the situation is more hopeful than it often seems. We are in permanent gridlock, except that the subjects of gridlock change over time, and you can call that progress. Yeah, I um. So this is this has been awesome. I want before you get out of here tonight. I want to do some like lightning round questions with you real quick. Okay. Just as like a fan who reads a lot of history, just curious to like pick your brain on some things. Yeah. Um. So real quick, who is your favorite president to study? Favorite president to study. Uh, I'm gonna give you a trick answer, and it's Theodore Roosevelt. All and right. this because Roosevelt was the most interesting guy. In fact, the presidency was the most boring part of his life. But nonetheless, he was an utterly fascinating character. That's awesome. Um, what's your favorite time period to read? To read? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, boy, that really just depends on if I whatever I've got a good book I'm reading on. My favorite history, favorite period to write about is the 19th century. Because at the beginning of the 19th century, in 1800, the United States was ancient by comparison to where we are today. By 1900, we're nearly, it's recognizably what we are today. So that period from 1800 to 19 is the period of the biggest change in American history. We are a capitalist democracy today. In 1800, we were neither capitalist nor democratic. In 1900, we were both. So how did we make that huge change during that century? That's the question. Hmm. Um, how many books do you read in a year? Oh, cover to cover, word for word for word. I really have no idea. And I don't read history books that way. I read okay. history books because history is my job. So I read into history books and I get out of them what they want. When I'm not doing history, I read novels. I read poetry. I read lots of other stuff. And I don't keep track of how many. Well, that was my next question. When you're not, when you're not doing history, what's your favorite subject to read or what's your favorite thing to read? Uh, usually novels of one sort or another. And the novels can vary from current day murder mysteries to, uh, you know, old standbys like Mall, Fan Mall Flanders and um, Treasure Island. Who is your favorite non-president uh, American political figure? Oh, let's see. William Sherman. William Sherman? Yes. Why? Why? Because he was... He was about the one person in American history we can say with certainty could have been president but said no. And it's really rare. He, he would have been handed the presidency 
the Republicans who controlled American politics at the time, they said, please, General Sherman, accept the nomination. And he said, no, I don't want to do it. And that he, he said no, because he despised politics and politicians. And he also had enough insight into himself to know that he would be a disaster as president because <laughs> he didn't know how to play the political game. If you could sit down with one person of all of history, who would it be? Well, it would be Benjamin Franklin. I spent five years with Franklin when I was writing his biography. And i he was a most congenial guest in my home. But there's something that I'm still not sure I know about Franklin. And that is, was he pulling my leg? Was he pulling the wool over my eyes? Was he really as easy to get along with? Was he as congenial? Was he as just... Uh, admirable a guy as he seemed to be. There were moments when there's evidence that he wasn't. He didn't, he wouldn't reconcile with his son who had taken the opposite side during the American Revolution. I have three children and I cannot imagine anything that they would do that would cause me to say, you are no longer my child. But that's in effect what Franklin did with William. So something's going on there and I could just get a, a, a hint of what's going on beneath the surface. So I'd like to sit down with him long enough to, to get him when he's not presenting himself to not when, when he's not simply being Ben Franklin. That's really interesting. I like how you kind of take the, like the, the, fem the, the family relationship and kind of layer it over and like, you know, what in, in reality, you're, you know, from what I read, the same thing, right? He's this very congenial guy, but I think we all look at ourselves and we go like, we're trying to be good. We're trying to be nice all the time, but we're not perfect. You know, there's going to be things that, you know, in, in darker corners that maybe we don't want, you know, the light being shone on. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. What did I have left here? Oh, so I have read the books that you see behind me, American Colossus, FDR, Heirs of the Founder, uh, Andrew Jackson, and Ben Franklin. Of the rest of the books that you've written, which one should I read next? Founding Partisans. Founding Partisans. It's my newest. It was published in early November and is about the emergence of party politics in the 1780s and 90s. And it seems to me anyway, quite appropriate to our moment in history today. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, an another quick question for you before we get out of here. Um, Jay Koss wrote in uh, Dispatch this week about an article about expanding the House of Representatives. And um, Kevin Kozer wrote an article in The Hill about expanding Congress's capacity. And, and when I read history, it's, it's one of the things that's stuck out to me the most is kind of how parts of the government have expanded power significantly, but one place that seems to have shrunken or lost power is the House, is Congress. Um, what, do you, what is your take on the, uh, those issues? To the extent that Congress has lost power, it's because Congress abdicated power. So presidents have a great deal more power, authority than they had before, but largely because Congress has yielded it to them. For example, Congress has allowed presidents to take the country to war without a congressional declaration of war. We haven't had a declaration of war since the day after Pearl Harbor. So Congress allowed that to happen. Congress, under the Constitution, is supposed to control trade policy, including the levying of tariffs. But Congress has handed that to the president. So President Trump could 
launch a trade war without consulting Congress. So Congress has given up many of its prerogatives and much of its authority to the president. If Congress were serious about governing, they could take that back anytime. But it's easier for members of Congress not to do this, to leave this to the president. But and so the the weak, the comparative weakness of Congress is not something that was, it's not a matter that the power was stolen by the president. Presidents have often appealed to Congress to say, okay, do this, that other thing, get this law passed. Now, if Congress doesn't act, or if Congress doesn't act in the way the president wants, then presidents you know, try to act on their own. But that's kind of in the nature of things. It is true that the presidency as an institution is much more powerful than it was in earlier times. Some of this is simply the fact that the United States has a full-time foreign policy. In the 19th century, in the 18th and 19th century, the United States had hardly a foreign policy at all. And the Secretary of State, who's now the chief diplomat, he was primarily domestically oriented. And But once we get into the 20th century, really with Theodore Roosevelt, when you have a full-time foreign policy, foreign policy is unusually the prerogative of the president. You, If you're going to make decisions foreign policy, you can't farm that out to Congress, because Congress is this committee of 535 people, and it just doesn't work. So that's part of the reason. But the other part of the reason is that Congress simply has decided, individuals have decided, Congress collectively decided, that we don't want the responsibility of making a decision for war. If the war goes badly, we'll blame Lyndon Johnson, we'll blame Richard Nixon, wherever it is. We don't have to take the blame ourselves. So I'm not sure how to remedy that aspect of the political culture to get Congress to step up. That, that's a tougher one. And it wouldn't be resolved by expanding the membership, the number of representatives in the House. Well, so I think that I don't think it would be resolved by expanding the number of representatives of the House, but I do think that the the number of representatives should be expanded. And I think that is just the idea of like the self-governing aspect of of our representation and the fact of there's just too much work for these people to do. They just need more employees is kind of the way that I look at it. Yeah, but the reason that they don't have time is that they spend so much of that time raising money. Well, that's and, <laughs> that's and so, another issue too. <laughs> yeah, and so that's a, that's a huge issue. I mean, yeah. I I I don't know lots of members of Congress, but I've gotten to know some of them. And as far as I can tell, when they start out, when they decide to go into politics, they have the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. They really want to do something good for their country. They've usually succeeded at some level somewhere else in a profession or in a business or something, and they want to you know, give back. And they get elected. And as soon as they get elected, they're brought in by the party leadership and, ex and explained, okay, between now and the next election, you've got to raise $15,000 every day if you want to have a chance of getting reelected. And this becomes their, their job. And uh, the only way really of dealing with that is to address the question of money in politics. And that's one under the current dispensation of the Supreme Court, we're not gonna be able to touch that. So well, I mean, if money is speech, then, you know, we got a first amendment. Well, I mean, I think that there is, I mean, there's a court argument that you can make and, and the idea of, it's not just the money is speech, but also the idea of the corp, uh, corporate personhood. And like these right, questions right. have been, you know, the, that had kind of started being debated in the early 1800s. And it kind of, that led to the idea of money as speech, which led to where we are. So there is an argument to be made about that in the courts. But moreover than what I think is like, 
this is an area where Congress has to act. This is an area where, you know, we should amend the Constitution. We should understand, we should amend the Constitution for several different reasons, but campaign finance, maybe just um, my, my thought process behind it is instead of a strict campaign finance law, but a layered corporate system where you have federal and state corporations with different like rules and guidelines, and then uh, a campaign finance system where those people can donate locally to where they're represented as opposed to across state lines and district lines and stuff like that, just to kind of funnel the money in the right location, make it a little bit more transparent. Um, I don't know, just kind of spitballing, but you know, as opposed yeah. to what we have now, which is just the wild, wild west. Yeah. The fundamental problem with that is that you're asking people to change a system that has benefited them and that will continue to benefit them because once you're in, you have an advantage. So incumbents have a huge advantage over challengers and they succeeded under the old system. So they have an incentive to preserve the old system. Now, if somehow you could say, you get people to say, okay, we're going to change the system, but the change won't take effect for 15 years. Then, okay, it's not going to harm you. You'll probably be out of politics by then. But that's a, it's a tough sell. Yeah, and again, I, it, it falls in that category of whatever system you have, there will be constituencies that benefit from that system, and they'll fight tooth and nail to preserve the system. Yeah. Cost so. makes that same argument in his article about expanding the House. He says, um, you know, the only people that you don't hear are the, the, the uh, people that are most quiet on expanding the House are the actual members of the House. They won't talk sure. about it. <laughs> sure. If you're Wyoming's sole member of Congress, you know, you don't want to you want to be share the, the floor with three others. Right. You know, you're just like, I am Wyoming's representative. Yeah. Yeah. John, anything uh, you want to get in here before we get out of here? Today? I had a bunch of questions, but but uh, Bill, you've answered them all. So I, I appreciate this conversation. I guess one question I thought was, is there a way to break through this? And you kind of hinted that you don't have an idea or you, I don't know if you've got some theory or something you want to, you want to push, put forward and we, we'll, we'll chew on it and bring it forward also to other people. Well, actually, as maybe I alluded to earlier, I'm not that big on theories. I want to I want to get at the stories. I'm, I want to look at the individual series of events and see if I can make sense of that. And I'll leave theorizing to other people. No, but that's, that's so true. Like there's so much of history where, you know, you get stuck in facts. And uh, so I was reading some kind of description of like a football game. And it's like a person throws a ball back and then three people run forward and, and four people run to the side. And it doesn't make any sense. But when you have the context of this is in a football game, you're like, oh, that's just a play that people are running. So I think like that's, that's the beauty of history and the beauty of, of the story behind the America, behind humanity in general. And yeah. I appreciate, appreciate authors that are able to um, think about that and, and bring it to everyone so that we can all become better people. Well, we certainly try. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it was, like I said, it was absolutely wonderful. Big, uh, Big joy for me. I'm a big fan. Um, I told all my kids, they were like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm interviewing HW Brands today. And they're like, who? And I'm like, come on, when you get older, you're going to read his books. I promise you. <laughs> okay. Good to talk to you, Jeff. John, they're take care. Gone, so they're going to go to UT Austin in a couple of years. All right. That. Excellent. Thank you. See ya. That was a wonderful interview. I just, I felt at points like I was in class and I was just taking notes and I was just so happy. What did you think? Well, I was upset because I had a computer in front of me. He said none of his students have computers. So, you know, <laughs> not quite the same, but it was 
It was great. Thank you so much to HW Brands for being on the show. Um, I love the fact, you know, like we always think about 330 million Americans and he had, you know, he just says it's a third of a billion. And I was like, oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so that's one of the notes I've got from our uh, talk. But, it, you know, it's good. Like, I think, um, I think the story of America is what has kind of propelled me, if you will, as, as you think about politics and you think about our parenting and, and what our children are going to be into, like, what's the, where are they going to be in the uh, American play, if you will, the worldwide play. And um, it's just good to hear that there's historians out there that are also thinking the same way where it isn't just the facts that there was a revolution in 1776, that there was a declaration of independence that said that all men are created equal, but it's this idea that um, we're all trying to improve our lives. And, uh, you know, he made the point about like uh, that people were concerned about, increasing the, the area of the country for jobs and how much of our, our current uh, politicians talk about jobs and stuff. And those, it's just like, like that's from one sense, that's a fact. Like we talk about jobs now and then talk about jobs then, but it was sort of, it's a different context. And I think like the narrative aspect is key for helping us parse about that context. Absolutely. That's what I, it's what we've been doing, right? You know, it's what we, what our classes have been doing is we're trying to, we're trying to tell a story. You know, we're trying to tell a story of America so so citizens can understand and decide what they want it to be, right? And and how they want their how how do you want to have a relationship with your government? And you know, what do you want your government to be? Because at the end of the day, it's a republic. It's a self-governing republic. It's up to us. Amen to that. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much to HW Brands for being on the show. And as always, if you're out there listening, like, subscribe, and share. Peace and love.